Hello, my name is Dr. Rebecca McKendry. I began working at Fangoria as an intern over 15 years ago, and I spent most of my time with the company working as the director of marketing. When Fangoria shuttered its doors in 2016, I was devastated. And over the next few years, I went on to get a PhD entirely focused in horror and cult media and began working as a professor focusing in horror and film, as well as a co-host of Blumhouse's Shockwaves podcast. In 2008, when Fangoria was resurrected with a new staff and a new fervor, I was once again asked to join the Fangoria family, this time as a podcast host. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to Nightmare University. This episode is brought to you by Fangoria Magazine. Fangoria Magazine is back in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discovery, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Mike Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will make your eyeballs pop out of your head, like Barbara Crampton and S. Craig Zoller. And the best part? It's in print only. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. That's Fangoria.com. This episode of Nightmare University is also brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For over 15 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for cult, horror, and weird cinema to customers all around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic DVD is the owner-operated small business choice for all of the demented discs you have been craving. Visit them online at DiabolicDVD.com. Welcome to Nightmare University on the Fangoria Podcast Network. So today on Nightmare University, we're going to talk about something that is a little bit less concrete than some of the normal history lessons that I'll be doing. This one is about genre and defining horror. So stop and think for a second. What genre or subgenre would you classify the following films as? Old Boy, Let the Right One In, Bone Tomahawk, Alien, Shaun of the Dead, Attack the Block, Predator. I include each of these films because these are all films that at some point I have gotten in an argument with somebody about what genre they are. I classify every single one of these as horror. I started getting really, really interested in the idea of defining what the horror genre is and even what horror is when I was hosting Dead Right Horror Trivia Night. Dead Right Horror Trivia Night is an event that Ryan Turk and I started about seven years ago in Los Angeles, and it's still been going strong for seven years now. We have it every month, third Thursday of every month, come find us, and it's a horror pub trivia night. And there was one night when I asked a question about the movie, I Saw the Devil, which I totally consider to be a horror movie, but I remember that somebody who was playing the game responded to me afterwards and was like, I can't believe you asked a question about I Saw the Devil. It's not a horror movie in any capacity, and this is a horror movie pub trivia night. Which point I immediately started arguing it back. Of course it's a horror movie. But in their eyes, it was not. It was a straight action revenge thriller. And then I had to stop and go, okay, well, is it a horror movie? I consider it a horror movie because it scared the shit out of me. And this argument really came to kind of a public head a couple of years ago when the movie The Witch came out. 
The Witch, marketed as a horror film, was marketed as one of the scariest films of the year, but when it did a more widespread mainstream release, I remember seeing Twitter blowing up with all of these people who not only did not find it scary in any way, were saying it was not a horror film. And I saw that some of the things that people were saying made it a horror film didn't make sense to me. Like some people were saying, well, it's historical. It can't be a horror film. It, you know, isn't supernatural enough. It's not a horror film. The supernatural stuff that's happening in it is questionably real. Like you don't know what's real and what's not real. And so therefore it's not a horror film. And I saw other people saying that it was not a horror film because it did not have any jump scares. There was never a point where you felt like a sudden shock. It was always just tension and tone and unease. And so then I really started thinking, you know, how do we as a country define the horror genre? And I say as a country, because if we look globally, what horror is, is different in kind of each country. So we're going to say just in the USA, maybe Canada, but that's what we're looking at is kind of, you know, what is centric to us. So let's start by thinking about what is genre in general. And even this word in itself is, is a really kind of slippery word to approach. The word itself, genre, is French, and it means to kind, uh, kind of, like like kinds, or to sort something. And over time, this word came to represent how we specifically sort media. So think like music, literature, art, video games, all of these we can think of in specific genres. The ancient Greeks even used the concept of genre because they had comedy, drama, satyr plays, epics, but even they, way back when, understood that these were not absolute because then within that they had tragic comedies and then the satyr plays were sometimes comedic and sometimes really body and sometimes dramatic and the epics could be really dramatic but also have comedy in them. So even back then when they were kind of starting this idea of subdividing our media, which they were doing with plays and literature, they knew that it was not absolute. So then let's stop and think about what are some of the traits that we think makes up the horror genre. Most people will immediately point to supernatural stuff, but obviously that's going to knock out if we say that all horror has to have something supernatural in it. That's going to knock out all of our slasher films, all of our giallo films. It literally means that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not a horror film. I don't know if I agree with that. So then the next one that a lot of people point to is it's got gore. Well, then that knocks out everything that's PG or PG-13. So like Psycho or Poltergeist or even Insidious is suddenly not a horror film. Okay, so then it has to have tension. Well, if we say that tension is something that has to be in all horror films, that's great. And I kind of agree with that, that it has to have a certain level of tension. But then that also knocks out some horror comedies. And then tension itself is kind of a questionable word because we each are going to embody tension differently. Some people might watch Psycho and be on the edge of their seat the entire time, and some may not. Some may watch something like a horror comedy, like Motel Hell, and find it to be absolutely terrifying and tension-filled, whereas I watch it, laugh my way through, and don't feel scared at all, and that's just different how we each embody tension. And then some people point to body count. Do people die in the movie? But then that gets problematic because there's a lot of films that I consider horror films where no one technically dies. Poltergeist, no one dies. The Babadook, no one dies. Even The Conjuring, which I considered one of the scariest movies to come out over the past couple of years, no one dies in The Conjuring. So knowing that every single one of these kind of things that we would point to is problematic, what most people kind of look at for horror in general is this kind of I know it when I see it mentality. 
And this I know it when I see it mentality was first used or at least publicly used in 1964 by Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. And it was him trying to decide, um, describe how he understood obscenity and pornography and that he couldn't, you know, was it nudity? Well, some nudity is pornographic, but not always. Was it sex? Well, sometimes sex is pornographic, but not always. Was it adult humor? And it was equally hard to define what pornography was. And so what he ended up saying was, well, I know it when I see it. And that's kind of where most of us classify horror right now is kind of we know it when we see it. But even that gets really problematic Because the internet has brought this argument to the forefront, and there's nothing that we as a society love more than arguing genre. And so even just within the past couple of years, there's a few films that I consider to be questionably horror films. Ones that I could easily classify as horror films, but they don't hold any of the common traits, and you could easily argue it. And even the I know it when I see it doesn't apply because I kind of know it when I see it. An example would be 2015's The Fits. The movie is about a girl who joins um, this kind of community dance group, and she's really trying to get into it, and it's at this community center. And one by one, for no rhyme or reason, the girls start going through these kind of fits where they have spasms. It's almost epileptic where they're, like, shaking on the ground. They start foaming at the mouth a little bit, and then they quickly recover, and it starts happening one by one. Now, that in itself is scary, but there's nothing supernatural going on. They never explain what's really happening. And if it was just those kind of epileptic fits that are working their way through this dance troupe unexplained, I would say, okay, maybe it's more of kind of a a, a bizarre action film. But the film also has this crazy horror score. It's on Netflix now. I highly recommend it. And so it's the score that made me say the director knew what they were doing and they wanted this to be paced like a horror film. And it is when the girls have the fits, it's unexplained, it is unprepared, it's scary as hell, and then afterwards you're left shaken by it. Another one is 2014's Nightcrawler, which when I first saw, I totally considered a horror film. And I remember discussing it on the podcast that I host for Blumhouse Shockwaves. And having people write me and be like, why were you discussing Nightcrawler? It's not in any way a horror film. To which I say, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that guy's a serial killer. And that's not spoiling the movie because we kind of get that in the first 10 minutes. Literally in the cold open of the movie, we get the idea that this dude is a serial killer. And then throughout the rest of the movie, we kind of get how he is trying to hold himself normally and find a job and find a place in society and how completely emotionally detached he is from everyone. So the movie almost leads with the fact that he is a serial killer and then gets further into the emotional side. And then there's also films that have slight leanings towards horror, but we would never consider them horror. I've had this conversation um, with podcast host Elric Kane before about the movie Frozen, the Disney movie. Go back and watch Frozen. It is a universal monster film about the monster who wants to fit into society but can't control something crazy about themselves, being it the fact that they're a werewolf or, you know, anything like that. So they take retreat in this crazy gothic tower trying to lock themselves in, but then one day society comes in and freaks out and calls them a monster. Literally, the movie is paced like a universal horror film. And so, you know, it's hard to kind of define what these traits are because we look at Frozen and we're like, clearly it's not a horror film, but then it's got some of these kind of tense moments to it and it's paced very similarly. And sometimes we determine what genre we are watching by the age that we watch it at. 
So when I was a kid, I remember seeing Return to Oz. This was the sequel that they made in the 80s of Wizard of Oz. And watching it as a 10-year-old, it was downright terrifying. I was determined it was a horror film, and I shared it with my friends as if it was a horror film. Watching it now, there is still some really fucked up shit in Return to Oz, but I no longer view it as a horror film. I think the same is true with Coraline. Um, Jurassic Park's another one that's a little questionable based on age, where my daughter considers it to be a horror film, but I don't consider it to be a horror film anymore. So genre can even change and adapt as we get older. Then we get into horror subgenres, and this is when it really starts exploding. This is where we have our slashers and our rape revenge and our found footage and nature runs amok and demonology and werewolves and Japanese pink films and containment horror and art dread and redneck exploitation and body horror and black exploitation and tiny little creatures like gremlins and ghoulies and space horror and psychological horror and it is endless. Endless. And most films bridge multiple genres. So if we think about paranormal activity, well, it feels somewhat containment horror because the entire thing is in one house, but it's also found footage and it's also supernatural, but somewhat also demonology and religious horror. So most films kind of will pull from two or three subgenres. It's really hard to fit them into just one. Now, thinking about all of this and the fact that genre is incredibly hard to define, there are still five major uses that I can see for genre in our current day. Because if it's hard to define and no one really knows what it is, why do we even keep genre around or the idea of it? Well, there's five major times that we really, really need the idea of genre in our lives. And the first is the most obvious as an organizational tool. And so when you go into a library, you can find the book that you want because it's in the section with all of the other same books, a classification system. And this has really come into play now that we've moved a lot of our viewing online. So we think about algorithms, like when you watch one horror film on Netflix or Shutter or Amazon or iTunes or whatever your viewing platform of choice is, the algorithm will then recommend other stuff to you. It will then say, oh, well, since you liked Shaun of the Dead, you may also enjoy Hot Fuzz or Attack the Block or Severance or other horror comedies. And so it's using that subgenre to kind of pick and choose other ones that it's going to recommend to you. This is also how we do awards. It's also how we classify our subgenres together. And so genre works first and foremost as an organizational tool for us to try to classify our media into like groups. The second one is that genre creates a set of rules and formulas. So we see this a lot in horror. If you think of a horror film, you can immediately think of ways that it's going to differ structurally from a comedy or from an action film or from a drama. And this especially is true within horror subgenres. So if we think about a slasher, we know exactly some of the formulas that are going to go into a slasher. And they're not true all the time, but they are true a good bit of the time that there is a group of kids and somebody is going to be picking them off one by one, probably in creative ways, maybe. Sometimes it's just very plain. And, and then it's going to evolve from there. Sometimes we'll find out that this person was wronged by a member of the group or perhaps they're haunting this environment. There's always kind of these set formulas that we will see play out over and over. We see this with mad scientist movies, shark movies, even haunted house movies of families moving into the house and then something slightly amiss. And with most of these, we can pick one landmark film that kind of set the rules in motion and then they were reinforced over and over by copycats. 
So we can point and we can look at Friday the 13th and we can say, oh, well, young Jason was wronged by the group of teens and so he's come back to pick them off throughout the summer. We can look at Jaws, which kind of established what we think of the shark film and how all of the different components fit together. We can look at Saw, which kind of became our quintessential torture porn and, you know, how we're tying people into a room and forcing them to do things and that there's all these different torture devices involved in it, but maybe they might learn something about themselves And then we can also look at Paranormal Activity, which set in motion not only a trend of found footage films, but also a trend of supernatural house films and how these landmark films kind of were then later reinforced by copycats. And that's not to say that not, you know, that some of the copycats aren't good or not trying to do different things or mixing it up a little bit, but they're all kind of riding on that same wave. So from there... The third major point that I would look at is that genres are kind of the way that we understand popular trends, knowing that something like Jaws came out and then it kickstarted a whole bunch of shark and aquatic horror movies, or that Paranormal Activity came out and it kickstarted a whole bunch of found footage movies. Subgenres and genres wax and wane in popularity, and cinematic representations tend to correspond with time periods so that we can look and we can say westerns, well, they definitely had a surge, and musicals, they definitely had a surge, and there was a time when noirs were really popular. So what genres are we seeing that are popular right now? Well, superhero movies are definitely championing the box office right now. We're still seeing a lot of action films. We're seeing Disney films and comedies many of them female-driven, and that's kind of what we're seeing reign at the box office right now. What genres are not really popular right now? Which ones would people probably have a problem greenlighting? Musicals. Even though that we have seen some musicals like La La Land come out over the past couple of years, overall, it's not a big box office draw right now, and I would also say noirs are still kind of a hard sell, and that's not to say that we don't see things come out that kind of are leaning towards noirs or neo-noirs. They're just not something that we're seeing a great deal of. And then there's also dead genres, genres that no one's really doing right now, like the whodunit film with the main detective trying to figure out who killed people is not a really popular one right now. Romantic epics, things like um, Titanic or Gone with the Wind, we're not seeing a lot of right now. And we're also not seeing a lot of spoofs, which were really big in the 1980s into the 90s. With things like Airplane or Kentucky Fried Movie, we're not seeing a lot of spoofs at the box office right now. So what's popular in horror right now? Well, we've been coming off of this big surge of haunted house films, and that kind of seems to be petering out a bit. We're seeing a lot of, and I will admit that this phrase bothers me, and I could do an entire episode on why I have issues with this phrase, elevated horror. We're seeing a lot of what people call elevated horror. And I don't necessarily think that it's any smarter than any other horror films that have come out. I just think that it's slightly more cerebral in the sense that it's a lot of it is put inside of older protagonists. So instead of teens just being picked off by a killer, we're looking at problems with life. I mean, if you look at something like Hereditary, we're looking at her deal with the loss of her mother, the loss of her child, the um, ambivalence that she's feeling from her husband. They're definitely centered on a lot more emotional issues than I think we would have seen with some of the slasher films. I would say the same for It Follows, which is one of the very first ones that people were inclined to call elevated. Um, and in this one, we're looking at this girl who has graduated high school and is in community college and doesn't really seem to know what she wants to do with her life yet. And she's looking back and reflecting on her childhood. And at the same time, she's reflecting on her environment and how she kind of lives in between worlds within the city. 
and and there's a lot going on there. And so it's not that I consider these stories to be elevated or smarter or better. I just think that they're dealing with a lot more emotional stuff. I would put Babadook in that as well. Um, and so we're seeing a good bit of those right now. But ultimately, subgenre can determine whether or not things get greenlit or don't. For instance, if we're seeing a massive surge of slashers, that could mean that a slasher script is more likely to get greenlit because it's more likely to do well right now. Or if that subgenre seems to be petering out in popularity at that moment, that could mean that it may not get greenlit. Or maybe it will because it completely reinvents the wheel of what a slasher is. But a lot of times when people are kind of trying to, to justify what films to put money into or not, that's what determines a lot of it is whether this subgenre is currently popular or not, or is the film doing something completely different that could completely reinvent the wheel. So knowing that some subgenres are popular at some times while others fall um, asleep, we can go back through history and we can kind of figure out what subgenres were popular at any given time. So we can look at the 50s and we can say, oh, well, it was a lot of mad scientist movies and atomic and giant monsters. And then we can move into the 60s, especially the late 60s. We start seeing a little bit more of kind of postmodern horror, horror that doesn't really have a firm ending. Um, when we get into things like Night of the Living Dead or Rosemary's Baby. And then when we look at the 70s, we can say, okay, well, horror seemed to get really extreme here. We were seeing a lot more of what people are inclined to call exploitation cinema, where it's things like Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes, where it's really just pushing the violence as hard as it can. When we get into the 80s, we see slashers. The 90s, we see the noir slasher, the kind of re-envisioning of it that came out after Scream. We also see these kind of giant horror action films like The Relic and Mimic and Deep Rising. When we start getting into the early 2000s, we start seeing this massive boom of um, Japanese remakes happening. But this is all happening at the same time as the torture porn cycle. So the two are happening simultaneously. And then when we get into the 2000 teens, we start seeing found footage films and paranormal films and things that are really contained within houses. And this by no means is inclusive of all the films that were coming out. Clearly in the 1980s, those slashers were kind of dominating. We saw creature features. We saw small contained horror films. We saw torture films. But this is just kind of where we see a lot of the films living. And it's these subgenres that come to define the, the, the time period for a lot of it. So when we look at something like Stranger Things, people talk about how Stranger Things feels so retro. So the fourth use of genre that I would point to specifically within the horror area is the idea of genre and subgenre as a tastemaker. And this is where we get into the I like blank, but I don't like blank mentality. We make a lot of our movie selections, I would say a huge, like 90% of them, based on what genres and subgenres we think we like. And horror fans were infamous for this, myself included. We're inclined to look at Netflix and go through and be like, mm, that one looks intriguing because I like creature features, or I'm not going to watch that one because it looks like a cult movie. We each have kind of our own little subgenres that we're attracted to, and we're inclined to watch. And that's not to say that, you know, I wouldn't watch a slasher. I would watch a slasher over a drama any day of the week. But even that in itself is problematic because that means that I'm cutting out all drama movies. So we as horror fans tend to kind of say that there are very specific subgenres that we are attracted to. And because of this, we may overlook other films. And so we have to wait for somebody else to tell us that it's really good. I myself... I absolutely love monster films and satanic films. 
So most of the time, I will take creatures and Satan over slashers and found footage. But because of this, I've noticed that I've missed a lot of really good found footage films. And it's not to say that I don't like found footage. I will just always pick satanic cult movies over that type of style. And so people have had to come to me after the fact and been like, Hell House Inc. is amazing. You need to see it. Lake Mungo is amazing. You need to see it. And yes, they are right. These were amazing movies that I kind of overlooked myself just because of my own personal misconceptions as subgenre of this tastemaker that I'm always going to prefer prefer satanic cult movies and monster films over found footage films, which is never really the case. Um, But we tend to kind of classify films together like this and then kind of pick and choose the ones that we like. So then the fifth tool for genre, specifically in the horror genre that I will highlight, is marketing. Genre is used for marketing constantly. Um, Films are ultimately made by marketing. How often have you rented something based on the cover or the graphic or the VHS box art only to get home and discover that the film is absolute crap? The marketing sold the film for you. Marketing can change the entire perspective of the film. It can even change where we kind of classify it as a genre. So if we look at the George Romero film Season of the Witch, Season of the Witch is a story of a wife who starts dabbling in witchcraft and then all of these accidents start happening around her. And in the film, much like in Romero's Martin, we are never 100% sure if she is completely a witch, if she's actually causing these accidents to happen, or if these accidents are just happening and she thinks she might be a witch. We're never really sure what's real and what's not. So it could be a horror film because there is definitely a potential supernatural element and there's definitely, much like Martin, this kind of like, well, she's convinced herself that she's a witch and might be causing these things to happen. So does it really matter if it's real or not because it's real within her? And so Romero titled it Season of the Witch when he first made it. But then when it came out for marketing, it was retitled as Jack's Wife because at the time they were trying to kind of market it as a more soap opera style women's drama. And then it also got sold as Hungry Wives, trying to sell it as kind of a sexploitation thing as well. So the movie never changed. Season of the Witch, Jack's Wife, and Hungry Wives are all George Romero's film, but they all received different titles and different covers for three different types of releases to try to sell it to three different types of audiences. This is not that unusual, especially back in the day. And often films were entirely bought and sold on marketing alone. If we look at someone like Corman or Canon or Empire Pictures, these companies were famous for selling film concepts and posters long before they ever went into production. And this even happened on what we consider to be major landmark films. Friday the 13th, Sean S. Cunningham wrote an ad in Variety talking about how the film was the most terrifying film ever made from the producer of Last House on the Left with this awesome graphic of the Friday the 13th logo breaking through glass. And he did this just because he wanted to kind of gauge how well the movie would do. Would it get a good response? Did people seem intrigued by it? And it got an explosive response, and he found some investors that way, so then, of course, he's going to make it. But this was just a poster at this point. Supposedly, something similar also happened with Nurse 3D, where the image was created first, and then the film was kind of crafted around this dynamite image of a nurse riding on a syringe. So throughout history, we see a lot of these kind of films being bought and sold based on the poster. 
And this is still happening today. We're seeing this happen in Netflix and Redbox and places like this where people will actually analyze what type of cover art is selling at that moment. And then that cover art will get put on a film whether or not it actually pertains to a film. An example I'll give is from a couple of years ago where we had this whole grouping of films of a woman with long hair looking right into the camera as she's being drug away. And we saw a huge grouping of films with this cover come out. I Didn't Come Here to Die, um, Roadkill, Yellow Brick Road, The Levenger Tapes, Adsentia. And all of these films had basically the same image. In some cases, it was like literally the same image. You could see that they were using the same one. But it was that somebody said at some point, hey, this is a really eye-catching image. It sold really well on this film. And then they kept reusing it. In only a couple of cases does this cover actually match the film, but it didn't matter because this would get people to watch it. And so ultimately, marketing can also reshape a film. Many years ago, when I was living in New York, I saw the play Bug. They live in your blood. What is that? Hey, you see it? It's a bug. I considered it to be a really taut, tense drama about PTSD. I never considered it a horror film until William Friedkin made the film and they marketed it as such. And I do have to say, William Friedkin definitely shot it way more terrifying than I was expecting. But that said, I had not viewed it as a horror film. And so seeing it kind of marketed as such was a shock to me. When I started thinking about it, it could be a horror film. The marketing made sense, but it didn't have to be. Had it been marketed as kind of a tense thriller about PTSD, I would have still been along for the ride with it. So then let's look at another film, Event Horizon. This morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster than light. When Event Horizon came out in the late 90s, it was marketed just as a science fiction film. Horror was not exactly having a boom at that time. And so I think that they probably said, you know what, Let, let's market this just more as a straight science fiction. And so if you watch the trailer, the theatrical trailer to Event Horizon, it does not lean on the horror nearly as much as the film did. And I remember going to see it thinking, well, this looks kind of, you know, like a science fiction. It might have a little bit of horror to it, but it's not crazy. And then actually getting into the theater and the movie goes fucking nuts. I mean, it gets gory as hell. And I was not expecting that, nor was that kind of how the film was marketed. It definitely kind of looked much more as like a straight science fiction film. And then we also see things like The Blair Witch. The Blair Witch had an amazing marketing campaign because they marketed it as real. I remember being in college, I think I was maybe a freshman when that movie came out, and they put posters up around our campus, missing posters of the kids, of the kids in the movie. And down at the bottom, it would say like the Blair Witch Project. So we knew what it was, but for some reason, that type of marketing had really never been done. So everyone was there. And I remember even thinking like, is this real? Could this be real? Is this footage real? Like there was this question. 
And in the back of our brains, I assume we all knew, no, this probably isn't real in any capacity. They're showing it at the cineplex up the road. This is not like the last known images of these kids that we're going to, you know, sit there and eat popcorn and eat Twix bars and watch. But at the same time, the marketing worked so well because we were all willing to suspend disbelief for a while to just go with it and watch the film. Brilliant marketing on that one. Even the Babadook. The Babadook is marketed as this crazy creature feature. If you watch the trailer, it seems like this crazy creature feature about a storybook character come to life. And then when you actually watch it, you realize that even though that it has moments of that, the majority of it is all stuff happening within the mom. It's about her own life and her own emotions. And so it was another one that was really cleverly marketed to bring people in. And I do consider The Babadook to be a horror film, but I'm not sure how strong of a horror film it is because of this element and because the monster does not play much of a role. Or, and this is where genre gets slippery, perhaps you consider the son to be the monster in it, or perhaps you consider the mom to be the monster in it. And this is where it gets into a lot of indecision within the genre itself, where we try to define what these tropes are. And then, of course, there are fantastic trailers online where people have shown how they can completely recreate genre. One of my favorite ones is from the Nick Cade Wicker Man, which was recut as a comedy trailer, and it's damn near perfect. I highly recommend checking it out. And this is where we kind of get into some of our contemporary um, controversies with genre. The idea that The Witch came out and everybody was immediately like, well, it's not a horror film. Well, why? Why is it not a horror film? Or even Get Out when it came out um, in 2018 and it was nominated for the Golden Globe that year for Best Musical or Comedy. And everybody was kind of scratching their heads going, it's not a comedy in any capacity. And then people in that same regard were saying, well, is this just not the industry wanting to own a major film as a horror film? Are we still kind of being disregarded? Or is this that people just don't know where to classify it? Is it a hard one to classify because they assumed it's by Jordan Peele that it must be comedic? And it's not. It has a couple funny moments, but it's definitely a horror movie. So if genre is this big, meaningless, amorphous blob created solely for marketing and cataloging purposes, how do we define horror within that? Well, defining horror is just as problematic because people will say, Oh, well, it has to have the supernatural element, but then that cuts out like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's this famous film theorist, Linda Williams, who said that horror is a body genre because it, it, it causes a physical reaction, like you're either sweating or your eyes bulge or you might scream. But I don't consider that true at all. Or maybe, you know, your heart might race a little bit. There are plenty of horror films that I can watch completely unaffected without any major, you know, I'm not like gripping my seat or sweating or anything like that, that I still consider horror movies. Um, and then some people will say, okay, well, it, it has to cause psychological terror and psychological distress. And I'm not sure that if that alone will do it, because I look at films like Gummo and Taxidermia, both of which I consider to be absolutely psychologically terrifying. And these movies caused me great distress. I was still thinking about taxidermia for days after I saw it. But if you look on IMDb, these are both classified as comedy dramas. And I consider them absolutely distressing. And then there's this idea of maybe it's just a sense of dread and tension. But then that means that every Lifetime movie would fall into this category or that Hitchcock is all horror. And I'm not sure that he is. So 
Then there's also the idea that horror is always transgressive, that it's somehow fighting against a social norm. And clearly, I would say that that is the case in a lot of instances. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was fighting against the mainstream. Last House on the Left was fighting against the mainstream. Even when we get into the 80s, I would say that a lot of the movies that we see in the 80s are kind of fighting against something. They're trying to give an alternate to kind of what mainstream cinema is, that somebody said it's not right to, you know, show a lot of gore, so we're going to show a lot of gore. It's not like right to, you know, worship Satan, so we're going to do that in the movie. But that said, not all horror movies are transgressive by any stretch. I mean, I absolutely love Lake Placid, but I don't consider it to be a transgressive horror movie. I would say that the absolute best definition of horror I have seen um, comes from theorist Noel Carroll who definitely equates it to much more of our emotional reactions watching the film and how the emotions mimic those of the character. Like if the character is feeling tension, we may feel a little bit tension. And the idea of the tone of the film. And that's where I think a lot of horror is clearly more clearly defined than a lot of just saying, you know, oh, well, it has to have supernatural. It has to have gore. I think tone implies intention in a lot of ways. And that if we look at the intention of the filmmaker, the intention of how the film is meant to be presented, then we can kind of see, okay, well, it's putting itself as a horror film, which is why I would not consider Frozen a horror film, even though that it may have that kind of same plot as a universal horror film and it may feel like a gothic horror the tone is not there. It is clearly not being intended as a horror film. He also cites the idea of the monster being present, the idea of something abnormal, of some type of horrific element within reality. And this is not to say that it is always, you know, Frankenstein or Dracula standing there in the flesh ready to eat you. A lot of times it's the idea of um, a ghost or a notion or something just being uneasy, which I think is, is the case in something like The Babadook, where it's, you know, everything is feeling off from the beginning of the movie. Something is uneasy and abnormal from the beginning of the movie. And then by the time that The Babadook actually shows up, we're like, okay, well, this, this crap's been going on for an hour at this point. So it feels like the abnormality has been there from the get-go. But ultimately... The entire audience is all going to perceive stuff differently, and we're always going to have different definitions of what the monster is. So if we look at something like the movie Martin, most people would watch Martin and say, oh, well, Martin's the monster. But at the same time, you're also supposed to feel sorry for him. So at best, we could call him abnormal, which would still classify it into horror films. And so I highly recommend that you check out the book, The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. Um, it just gives a really great genre definition and deep dive, but it really does hit what I personally consider to be the core concept of defining what horror is, which is tone and, and kind of the emotional conveyance of it. And I would add to that intention. What is the intention of the filmmaker? So knowing that we will likely never come up with something that we can all agree on as a definition of genre. Why do we argue? What is the point if we are never going to agree on it? Well, ultimately, we love to argue. We absolutely love to argue. It's what we're best at as a society. And the, the internet just exacerbated that to a thousand degrees. Our brains all work differently. And when we watch a movie, each one of us is going to target a different factor of that movie. And so... 
when we watch something like The Witch, some of us are immediately going to target the fact that it does not have any jump scares and go, okay, well, it doesn't have any jump scares, so therefore it's not a horror movie. Whereas I targeted The Crow picking at her nipple and immediately went, well, that's fucking scary. It's a horror film. Other people would target the fact that it has no gore and say, maybe it's not. Or other people are going to target the tone and say, well, maybe it is. And so we're each going to kind of pinpoint something different in the film that we look at as kind of our own catalyst of whether or not it's horror. And then we argue because it's what we're good at and it's what we love to do. So then one of the biggest questions with genre and where it gets really important to the industry is, is it possible to predict genre trends? And specifically within horror, is it possible to predict subgenre trends? Is there a point where we can say, okay, well, um, you know, haunted house films have been petering out a bit. We're seeing this elevated horror kind of, we're seeing a rise of that. Is it possible that over the next couple of years that slashers are going to be huge or suddenly we're going to see werewolf films again? Or I don't know, maybe animals will be running amok like they did in the late 70s where suddenly bears and alligators and snakes and rabbits are all attacking us again. Ultimately, as I mentioned before, this is a lot of how projects get greenlit. We're, we're either trying to find something that is going to be that landmark film to completely reshape where we are, or we're trying to predict what genres are going to be really popular, specifically in the subgenre realm, so that we can ride that wave. And so this is kind of, it's always a guessing game, but you can kind of assume that things are going to wax and wane in interest, but, you know, it's, it's always difficult to present. You know, are torture porns coming back? It's, we, it's impossible to say until there is kind of one film that people are going to point to and go, yes, you have redefined us. And people definitely pointed to Get Out for that last year, saying that this has completely redefined the genre and we are now going more in a social messaging direction. And so I'm anxious to see if that is the case and if we see this follow-up of social messaging inserted in our horror films. And I think that people said the same thing um, about the Babadook and the Invitation and a couple films like this that came out in the past couple of years and that we're now pushing this elevated, more um, about emotional responses and life problems horror films. And I definitely think we are seeing more of those. But I'm really excited to see what's next. And ultimately, it's all about people reinventing the wheel. So we're not likely to see a massive boom of slashers again until we see somebody reinvent the wheel. We can look at somebody like Wes Craven and we can see that he really did kind of reinvent the wheel in each decade as he was going along. We see him in the 70s with Last House on the Left. We see him in the 80s with Nightmare on Elm Street in the 90s with Scream and Scream specifically because by the time that Scream came out, slashers, they had had an entire decade and had really kind of fallen asleep for a while. And it wasn't until... Um, Craven brought it back and really used that formula to kind of make fun of itself, kind of flipped it on its head, that it really did take off again. And then we saw a whole grouping of kind of neo-slashers on um, things like Urban Legend, I Know What You Did Last Summer, um, that, you know, kind of used this entire decade's worth of knowledge that we had about slasher films and really started to play with it and make it really self-aware. And so until somebody can do something like that again or find a new way to reinvent it, we're not going to see that big boom again. But man, there are a couple of subgenres that I really wish we could see that again. I would love a surge of werewolf films. I would love to see slashers return again in some capacity that would make me stand up and cheer and go, yes, you have reinvented this formula yet again. Um, so keep trying, guys. Please bring back some, some forgotten subgenres. And so ultimately... 
when we're trying to define horror, I'm going to look at this in much the same way as we as a society tend to view beauty. Um, the concept of beauty is in the eye of the beholder was first kind of expressed by the Greeks, but it's been used repeatedly throughout all of literary history in varying forms. The idea that beauty is impossible to define because ultimately each one of us is going to have a different interpretation of what beauty is. And this is also the way that I view horror, polar opposites, but I think that it falls into the same thing. Horror is in the eye of the beholder because horror is just as abstract, profound, and boundless a concept as beauty is. Thank you guys so much for listening to Nightmare University. We'll be back next week where we are discussing the haunted house film boom of the late 1970s. Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.